Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. Church, and good morning to all of you who are watching online. I think you all deserve an award this morning because you woke up an extra hour early to come and worship in this place. Amen? Well, you may not believe that about yourself, but I believe it because typically the first hour on uh, Daylight Savings Time Sunday is very poorly attended. But we look pretty full this morning, so I'm glad that you're here. We are continuing our teaching series called The Four Beds. This morning, if you have a Bible or Bible app, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll also be looking at chapter 3. Jeremiah is one of the uh, major prophets of the Old Testament. He's about halfway through the first half of your Bible. You can kind of find it there. Oh, it was a little over a year ago, it was a Monday morning when a man woke up to the sound of his dog panting in his face when he realized that he had to get started with his day. So he woke up and he took the dogs outside and by the time he came in, the kids were already coming down the stairs. And so he began to prepare breakfast and as he made the meal and the kids ate, he ushered the children out the door and he looked at his wife and she looked beautiful. They gave each other a small kiss on the lips, and they both headed out their separate ways to work. It was a very busy day at work, and when they came home, there was not much time between when they got home and when all the kids had to be at various practices and sports. And so a man did what any man does. He got a box of pizza bagel bites, and he put them in the oven, and he heated them up for his family to eat, of which they quickly consumed while they were standing around Uh, you know, that little island in your kitchen. Not really a dinner table, but it's a place that you can eat and talk and and kind of get moving. Uh, And sure enough, they got all the kids to the various events, and then they picked up all the kids from the various events, and they got home, and they got all the kids showered, and then they put all the kids in bed, and it was about 9.30 at night, and the man laid in bed next to his wife and promptly picked up his phone to scroll Facebook. And so did she. Sooner or later, they fell asleep. It was Tuesday morning, Wash, rinse, repeat, it was almost identical to Monday morning. All of a sudden, Wednesday came around, and Wednesday was a very similar pattern, but instead of pizza bagel bites for dinner, they had fish sticks, since that was good. But they also had youth groups, so they had to go off to church real quick where the man serves, and he invested his time there while the wife was at home tending to the other kids, and they were separate, but then they came back again once more. It was about 9.30 at night, and they got on their phones and then fell asleep. Thursday morning, it was the very same thing. Except they have a growth group in their home. So as they did all the stuff, they had to clean their house. They brought everybody in. They had growth group. And they went to bed that night again. Except this time they chose to watch a Netflix episode instead of be on their phone. Friday. Oh, Friday. The man was looking forward to Friday so much because Friday, finally, there was nothing on the family agenda that night. So after they did all the same routines, did all the life of work, he gets home from work only to find out He has multiple kids going to different friends' houses for sleepovers. There's other kids coming into the house for a sleepover. And the moment that he thought he was going to be able to rest, he realized, I'm going to be up to like 10 taking care of stuff again. So they do all the things, and all the kids go off, and it's at 10 o'clock at night, and he goes to bed. Saturday, though, Saturday he knew he was going to be busy because he had to do a whole bunch of renovation work around the house. Springtime was coming. 
So he had to prep everything, and so sure enough, he gets everything ready and spends the whole day alone in his garage, which you would think was isolation, but ultimately, it was more work and taxing than it was restful. Sunday morning came around, and the man woke up, and he was tired because he had to get his family to church, and so they were getting ready to go when he and his wife decided that, well, she's serving one service, he's serving another service. They probably should take separate vehicles. So they went and took separate vehicles, and they did all the church stuff, passing each other in the hallways, and then finally, at the end of the day, they get home again. It's about one o'clock in the afternoon, and the man promptly falls asleep on the couch because he's tired. He thought to himself about five o'clock, you know, it's been a really busy week, It's somewhere in my week I'm going to need to find time for my wife. And so he looked at his wife and he said, honey, I love you. And she said, well, I love you too. And then they both promptly did other things and then laid back in bed, got on their phones and fell asleep. Eight weeks later, after the same routine, laying in bed one night, the wife looks over at the man and she asks him a very serious question. Do you still love me? flabbergasted. The man was completely flabbergasted that his wife would ask him such a question. For the last two months of his life, he's been relentlessly serving her and serving the family and doing all the things around the house as much as he possibly could. But as he began to think about it, he realized in the last eight weeks, they really hadn't talked much. And if they were talking, they were talking about the plans for their family or they were arguing about the plans for their family. And he found himself wondering, how did all of these little things wedge between us? And why were they arguing about teriyaki chicken? Like, that seems kind of random, but it's just one more of those things. And so the man and the wife, they sit down, they have a long talk, they learn how to forgive each other, they, they promise to make things work with one another, and then they go to sleep content that they resolved this moment of marital strife. And then three months later, they found themselves having the same conversation as his wife rolled over and asked, do you still love me? Can anyone in this room relate to that story? The details may be different. Where you spend your time may be different. But the conversation is still the same because what you find is that while you're together, a thousand little things, sometimes many good things, have wedged their way between you. And now you have to find a way to claw back to each other again. So this morning, we are talking about the second bed, which is called the crib. And maybe you think we're talking about parenting this morning. We're not really talking about parenting. What we're talking about is that when you are married and you go throughout life, there's going to be a lot of good things, things that bring you joy, things like children that we all celebrate, but they have a way, if we're not careful, of actually driving distance, emotional distance between us and our spouse. And in Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3, what you're going to read is a conversation from God to the nation Israel with two accusations. The accusations outline the distance that have come between God and Israel. And at the end of that time, he actually offers them a chance to reconcile. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, Jeremiah chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 2. This is verse 13. Don't get to that just yet. I'll come last. Thanks. These guys always jump the gun. It's good, though. You're on it. 
Jeremiah chapter 2, starting in verse 2. You can listen to what I'm going to read if you don't have a Bible in front of you. Ready? This is God talking to Israel. Do you remember the devotion of your youth? How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not even sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who, dev- all who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. I like how God begins this whole conversation by calling Israel his bride. That's husband and wife language. You're my bride. He goes on, starting at about verse uh, 10. What fault did your ancestors find in me, that they strayed so far from me, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves? And then jumping down to verse 13, you can put that on the screen. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So we see the Lord refer to Israel as his bride. Here is why. In Exodus chapters 19 through 24, the nation of Israel entered into a covenant with God. It was Moses on Mount Sinai. This is when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. And when Moses comes down representing as a priest who conducts the ceremony between God and the nation of Israel, all of Israel steps into this covenant relationship with God in that moment. Now, a covenant is a powerful, powerful word. It's actually used multiple times throughout the Old Testament. And if you are an astute student of Scripture, there are, I believe, I think, oh man, I can't believe I'm blanking on this. Five. There's five covenants that God has made with his people all throughout uh, Scripture. And what we see in a covenant is that it is a relationship between two people that is comprised of what we call binding promises. People begin to say vows and oaths, and then they mark their covenant with some kind of sign. So Exodus 19 through 24 is all the vows and oaths and promises and blessings between God and Israel. And then God at the end of that says, and you will have a sign, and that sign is going to be circumcision. So that is the sign of the oath and the covenant in which they entered. Now, many of you who are married, uh, you entered into a marriage covenant, right? This was the Mosaic covenant that God's talking about, but you entered into a marriage covenant where you made binding promises to one another. They were uh, pledges to each other about how faithful you would be and how much love you would have, and you put one of these awesome little things on your hand, which is a ring, as a sign of the covenant that you'd enter into uh, with your spouse. And covenants are really cool because they outline the obligations and the priorities of both individuals. They're not contracts. They're not temporary. A covenant is actually eternal, okay? A covenant is eternal, and covenants can only be, pro- be broken if either both parties choose to change the covenant or one of the parties dies. So when God enters into a covenant with Israel, it's an eternal covenant because God's an eternal God. Now, every generation that came after the generation who made that promise would have to renew the covenant, but God would always uphold his end of the covenant. Now, in marriage, our marriage covenant comes to an end when one of us uh, passes away. Now, God makes some exceptions for the marriage covenant to end otherwise, but predominantly the only criteria for a covenant to end would be the death of a spouse. Now, in this covenant, because God cannot die, it's an eternal covenant, God promises the nation of Israel that they will be high priests, they will represent him to the nations, and all they have to do is follow the law as laid out in Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy, and if they do those things, 
then God would bless them, honor them, cherish them, uphold them among all the nations, and they would be fruitful and multiply, and God's name would be glorified. And just like in a marriage ceremony, in Exodus chapter 24, at the very end of Exodus chapter 24, Moses is there, God is here on the mountain, the people are down here, and all the people of Israel say together, and it's really loud, it must have been super loud because they all said together, everything the Lord has said, we will do. It was a great big I do from the nation of Israel to God. I promised. They promised. Now, if you know the story of the nation of Israel, you would know that they didn't keep their covenant faithfully. They would keep it for a period of time, and then the next generation would come, and they would fall into what we call apostasy, or they would neglect the covenant, and all of a sudden, it would drive wedges between the nation of Israel and God. And so God calls out to them in Jeremiah 2, after the end of hundreds of years of this pattern, and he simply says, do you still love me? Do you still love me? It's a really powerful question to ask between two people in a covenant relationship because a lot of things have wedged between them. So God says there are two evils that Israel committed. We're going to look at both this morning, and I think you're going to find that they parallel the sins that we commit against our spouse inside of our marriage. The first evil is this. He says, you have forsaken me the fountain of living water. That's Jeremiah 2.13. You have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. In other words, what God is getting at, if you look in the earlier verses, is that the people of Israel, instead of depending on God for all of their needs, they started to carve wooden idols. And they fell into a pattern of idolatry. And so all of their time and their affection and their orientation of life, instead of being modeled around God's law, were modeled around pagan rituals. And so the nation of Israel forsook God. They valued something more than they valued their relationship with him, and they entered into idolatry. Idolatry is valuing anything more than you value your relationship with God. It occupies all of your thoughts, all of your time, and all of your behaviors. In marriage, here's how this parallels. In marriage, when you value anything else over your spouse, it evokes the same emotion that God has for Israel, which is jealousy. Okay? When you value anything more than your spouse, it evokes jealousy from within them. This is a pretty common emotion for a lot of us to feel and experience inside of marriage. Now, a lot of us think of jealousy as, I don't really like that woman talking to my husband. You know, that feeling of like, mm, I'm not sure that's okay. But jealousy is actually a very rich and very deep and very powerful emotion given to you by God because it's kind of like a warning signal. It's telling you that something is coming between you and your spouse, and it's actually the emotion that drives you towards wanting to reconcile or pull them back closer to you. So maybe you've had this conversation with your spouse uh, friends where you're doing something on a pretty regular basis, or maybe you've got a group of friends you hang out with a lot, and all of a sudden your spouse starts nagging you. You ever have a naggy spouse? Am I the only one? Right? I love you, honey. I'm sorry. Everybody in this room at one point in time has been the naggy spouse. Now, women usually get a bad rap for this, but it's not just women. I see men do this all the time, too. People nag their spouses. That nagging mentality is because you're trying to bring them back to yourself. You know, there's something between you, and you don't like it, and you're going to start nagging on them. And, you know, nagging maybe isn't the best way to address the issue, but, like, it's one of the ways that we know how to do it. And so we start coming after our spouse. Hey, come on, what about that thing? Are you still going to participate in that? Like, ah, you don't need to be doing that. Come spend time with me. So I want to look at two different things this morning under 
uh, that are issues that can evoke jealousy from our spouse and become a wedge between you uh, and your partner. You ready? And these are, I'm not going to tell you this right now, they're very controversial. You're not going to like it, and you're probably going to disagree on certain areas, and that's okay. It's God's word. You disagree with him, okay? First one is this, they're children. Children can become a significant wedge between a husband and a wife. Somewhere in the last 30 years, I don't actually know how this happened because I was growing up at this point in time, but I can sociologically tell you as I look at the history of the world, somewhere in the last 35 to 40 years, children have taken on a God-like status in our culture. They are like a deity, right? There's like a culture where children are treated like a deity where our whole life and our whole society must orient everything around to serving the needs of our children. Family schedules are no longer dictated by what the parents are involved in or by any other cultural norm. They are dictated by the activities of the children. I've lived this. I've seen it. Schools, sports, churches, businesses, institutions. Do you know what they all have in common? All of them know and all of them have learned that if you get kids excited, they will pester their parents until their parents are crazy, and then the parents will make sure their kids are involved in that thing. Okay? Now, if you have raised children in the last 30 years, you ever had that experience with a kid? I've had that experience with a kid. And my kids love being involved in things, and my kids come home, and they're like, Dad, there's an ice cream social. I'm like, I don't want to go to that. But we all end up going because five kids are chirping in my ear to get me to go do this thing. And here's what these organizations do. And yes, I'm talking about the church. I listed four, and the church does this too, and we're guilty of it. And I apologize for it, but we all fall trapped to this cultural behavior. Here's what happens. If you can't get kids excited, we start to make them feel guilty. Oh, you really should be there. It's very important. It's very important to your development. It's very important to societal engagement. You know, it's, it's, it's civil duty, really. You've got to be here. If you can't make them feel guilty, then you make them feel punished for missing out. Oh, you can't make practice because you're going to church? That's all right. I'm just not going to play you. Oh, that's frustrating. So all of a sudden, now you've got to prioritize being somewhere versus somewhere else you want to be because there's a fear of punishment involved. And if you can't make a kid feel punished, you make them feel like they lost out on something incredible. Oh, whoa, wow. We all won a million dollars and you didn't. You know, it's hyperbole, but that's the way kids feel. That's the way they're made to feel. And all of a sudden, we've created this new condition that's like 15 years old now with social media. It's called FOMO. Not sure if you know what FOMO is, but FOMO is what's called the fear of missing out. It's like everybody's doing something but me. I'm missing out on all the cool things. And so because kids have FOMO, parents don't want to hear about their kids' FOMO. And so all of a sudden, they try to get their kids involved in everything. And instead of committing to one thing thoroughly, they commit to 50 different things half-heartedly. Oh, I'm going to come to this, I'll come to a little bit of this, come to a little bit of this, come to a little bit of this. And people are tired as a result. They're tired. Listen to what Exodus chapter 20 says. You ready? This is a quote from God. This is in the covenant between God and Israel. Listen to what he says. Remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But on the seventh day, a Sabbath to the Lord your God is necessary. On it you shall not do any work. Now just wait. Neither you nor your son, nor your daughter, 
Why does he feel the need to lay out all three members of the family, the parents and the children? Why is that critical? Because it applies to everybody. We all need rest. I'm going to give you some biblical insight here. Ready? When your children rest, you get rest. When your children rest, you get rest. And when your spouse rests and you are resting, it's easy for you and your spouse to focus on one another again. Can you imagine a world in where every week you had a full 24 hours to love your spouse, to be with them, uninterrupted by things outside of what your little family unit has chosen to do for one another, to help each other around the house, to work alongside one another, to cook together, to spend time talking about spiritual things and reading scripture together. Can you imagine how much more solidified a marriage relationship would be if one day a week was devoted to one another? It'd be a lot healthier. And as I'm saying this, you're going, oh man, that does sound really, really good. It's because that's the way God intended it to be. That a Sabbath, while its primary purpose is to focus on God and worship Him and make it holy, if you've ever actually practiced a biblical Sabbath, it is so much about the family. Being together, spending time with each other, communicating with one another, and then bringing God into all of that as an object of your worship and praise for the gift of what He's given you. We need to create space in our life to do these things together. Now, there are literally so many things that can come between you and your spouse like a wedge, not just children, uh, your jobs, your hobbies, uh, even bad things. You might have addictions that can become between you. Pets can come between you. I've had that argument a lot. Their schedules, their phones. I mean, you can fill in the blank with anything. Anything that gets your time and attention and behavior more than your spouse is going to be a wedge that drives between you. And eventually that jealousy begins to be evoked, and it works It's supposed to work in God's intent, to actually drive you closer together, not drive you further apart. Because jealousy is that indicator that there's something that's come between you and somebody else. Now, I have felt at times neglected by my spouse in some of these areas, and she has felt at many times neglected by me in many of these areas as well. And we always have to reevaluate our time and priorities in that space. Are we still focused on one another? Are we making time for each other on a weekly basis? All right, second thing that comes between spouses. You ready? And this is maybe harder. It's parents and in-laws. I have seen many marriages strained by well-meaning parents. And I've seen many marriages strained because of a child who doesn't have the guts to create boundaries between his in-laws and his spouse or his parents and his spouse. Listen to Matthew 19. This is Jesus. I'm going to read it again. Matthew 19, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, these are two direct commands from Jesus. Two direct commands. You will leave, you'll become one, and what God has brought together, let no man separate. If you have two commands from Jesus, you can bet that Satan's going to come after that pretty hard on a regular basis to separate your marriage and if you weren't here last week, watch online. I talk a lot about that for about 10 minutes. Now, children in this room, you are children. Do you know what your parents need from you? If you're a married person and you, your parents are still living, here's what your parents need from you. Ready? They need honor because we're told to honor our father and mother. mother. But here's what honor is not because I think there's some confusion around this idea. Here's what honor is not. Honor is not following your parents and everything they do. 
It is not agreeing with them. It is not betting to their will. It is not placing your spouse above, or it is not placing your parents' will above your spouse's will. Honor is respectful support when needed. Honor is appropriate appreciation and love for everything they've done, and honor is thankfulness. But here's what honor does at its best. You ready? Honor means you don't allow your parents to sin against your spouse. I've seen it happen a lot. And I know, moms, you love your kids, and there's never going to be anybody good enough for your child, and that's true because everyone's sinful. I get it. But honor means, if you're a child and you have parents, honor means you don't let your parents sin against your spouse. You are now one flesh. When your parents sin against your spouse, they're sinning against you, and they might not even realize it. And they are intentionally, sometimes, or maybe unintentionally, acting as a wedge between you. So if you're not sure if your parents are an issue in your marriage, I'm going to ask you one question. It's an evaluation question. This is for you to ask. How often do I feel neglected by or am I frustrated with my spouse because of their parents? How often do I feel neglected by or am I frustrated by my spouse because of their parents? If the answer is occasionally, that's normal. It's sinful, but it's normal, okay? It's like the normal amount of sin that everybody's going to deal with. If the answer is more than occasionally, in fact, it's frequently, once a week, twice a week, every single day, maybe you've been living with something for a very long time, harboring it against your in-laws or even against your own parents, you need to bring that before the Lord and bring it to each other and start working on that relationship. So that's the first thing that happens in a marriage. It's very similar to what Israel did with with the Lord. Israel started worshiping false gods. It started valuing something else greater than the Lord himself, which is essentially idolatry. And in our marriage, when we place other things above and prioritize over our spouse that aren't the Lord, it's akin to idolatry, and it evokes jealousy, and it recognizes the wedge between us. And that's the indicator we need need to do something about this. Second thing, and these things are fairly quick. Second thing that Israel did, they began to follow the practices of, of the nations around them. They made allegiances and alliances with the nations around them. Now, in times of turmoil, Israel, instead of looking to the covenant and depending on God, as outlined in Exodus 19 through 24, which they should have done, they abandoned the covenant and they went for easy solutions. They said, well, my, my neighbor Egypt, they have the Nile River, so we'll go there for water. And my neighbor, my, my neighbor Assyria, they're not having famine. They've got grain, so we'll go there for grain. And they went outside of the covenant to have their needs met. And they doubled down on their relationship with Egypt, the relationship with Syria, once again, burdening the covenant they had with the Lord. And as a result of those allegiances, Israel adopted all kinds of practices, not just not dependence on God, but all kinds of practices, things like child sacrifice, things like dishonoring the poor who lived among them. They, all kinds of practices that dishonor God, Israel adopted as a result of their allegiance with the surrounding nations. So here's, here's what happens in marriage, right? We have relationships with other people that are not our spouse. It's just true, we do. Some of them are friends, some of them are colleagues, whatever it is. We have relationships with people that are not our spouse, and they help us dishonor God, and as a result, they hurt our spouse. Okay, relationships that help us dishonor God hurt our spouse. It's just a reality of being inside of a relationship. So this last week, I was down in sunny Orlando, and it was beautiful and warm, and I, you should be jealous because it was great. 
I was there for a church conference of ministry leaders, and there was 12 pastors, and we were all having dinner one night, and we were staying in an Airbnb together, so we brought in a bunch of pizza, which is what pastors do. We eat pizza, okay? Uh, so there we are eating pizza, and uh, there was like 15 pizza boxes, and there was this tiny little bowl of salad. Just a little guy. Had some cherry tomatoes in it. And everybody's sort of like, why is there a salad here? Who's going to even eat the salad? Because we ate all the pizza, but the salad was still standing. When somebody piped up, well, the salad's there so that if your wife asks you what you had for dinner, you can tell her you had a salad. <laughs> it's a funny joke, all right? We were joking around, just being guys. And I don't think anybody took that serious, uh, but it's not untrue, is it? That kind of relationship with people. There are relationships that we get into with people that are not our spouse that will lead us to dishonor God in a small way, which then creates a division between us and our spouse because we want to lie to our spouse or omit details to our spouse about things that we have been participating in. I mean, seriously, like, look at this. How many times have you seen Hollywood do that plot? That plot where a guy does something and tries to keep it from his girlfriend or his wife or whatever has been done a million times over, and what happens in the end of the movie? Oh, she always finds out. What happens in your marriage? They always find out. I don't know what makes us think we can actually keep something a secret because what's done in the darkness will be brought to the light. It's just going to happen, guys, whether it's been 35 years or 50 years. Guess what? You could even die in your sin, and if your spouse outlives you, I guarantee if they're rummaging through a box, you're going to find it somewhere. Because when you sin against your spouse, with other people, whatever it is, and you begin to lie to them about these things, it creates a deep wedge that sooner or later is going to erode trust. Lies erode trust. Exodus chapter 23, in the covenant, God tells Israel, you shall not spread a false report. That's what you should not do. You should not spread false reports. Why? Because lies erode trust, and trust is a bonding agent between spouses. Trust is what makes us feel secure, right? And security is a critical emotional need that we all have inside of a marriage relationship. We don't have to worry about what our spouse is doing. Now, I want you to imagine for just a minute, if God wasn't trustworthy, you'd have no security in his promises, so if you're a follower of Jesus, and he has promised that if you believe on him, that you're forgiven for your sins, you can spend eternity with him in heaven, and that the new kingdom starts now today on earth, if God did anything to even hurt you once or lied to you once, your security in that promise would be damaged significantly. So security is a critical human need brought to us by God himself that requires us to act in a trusting and honoring way. And here's what God says to Israel, because Israel was going before God acting all innocent, Jeremiah 2.35, God says this. God says, in spite of all these things that you do with these other nations, you come to me and you say, I am innocent. Surely the Lord's anger must be turned from me. Okay, that's called gaslighting, by the way. And Israel's trying to gaslight God and be like, God, look, you don't really understand. It's not really that big a deal. It's not that big of a problem. You're the one that's crazy. I'm not crazy. You're crazy. And the nation of Israel does this time and time again, and I've seen this happen in marriages all kinds of times where the spouse who's in sin tries to go to their spouse and convince them they're just crazy. I'm not really in sin. Something's wrong with you, not wrong with me, because they seek to justify their own behaviors. Friends, I want to let you know that these two things, the idea of forsaking God, which is idolatry, or therefore forsaking your spouse, which is akin to that, and then also dishonoring our spouse by participating in sin with friends who dishonor God and therefore hurt our spouse by creating more wedges between us. These things are primary killers of marriages. 
The majority of conversations that I have with couples are not because somebody went out and committed adultery. That happens, but it's the rarity, not the normative behavior. Most people, if you understand what they're actually going through in divorce, are divorcing over small things that piled up over time, not something like my spouse went out and decided to engage in some sort of illicit behavior with a woman of the night. That's not what causes divorce the majority of time. It's slow, ebbing, and eroding because of behaviors where we start to value others more or we dishonor God and therefore hurt our spouse. And there's no reconciliation to be had between. Now, I know that uh, there's a lot of you in this room that are probably in great and wonderful marriages, and they're just a little bit of struggle. There's some of you in this room that are in very, very difficult marriages, and I understand that even as I preach these things, it can be very triggering for some of you. And, I, and, and there's emotional experiences at work here that make this feel very uncomfortable for you. And I know how hard that can be because I have been in places in my own marriage uh, that have been very uncomfortable at times. But God has hope because God offers reconciliation. There's always reconciliation to be involved. And that's what we see in, Gen- in Jeremiah chapter 3 is that God always offers a way for reconciliation. God says this in Jeremiah chapter 3, you've sinned against me, you've dishonored me, you've forsaken me, but I plead to you to come back to the covenant, and if you come back, I will restore it, because covenants can always be restored. They can always be restored when we acknowledge our guilt and seek reconciliation. Covenants can always be restored when we acknowledge our guilt and seek reconciliation. Here's Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 11. You ready? This is God to Israel. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. Just acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge your guilt and come back to me. I'm a merciful God. I'll redeem you and I'll forgive you. God's desire is to be in a healthy covenant relationship with Israel. Your desire, if you're married, is to be in a healthy covenant relationship with your spouse. Why is that? Because you're created in the image of God, and God, in his merciful heart, wants to redeem Israel, and people, believe it or not, even if you're deeply hurt, you still long to be in that healthy covenant relationship, and there's a possibility for you and for your spouse to have it, no matter how deeply damaged things can be, and here's where you get it. You start with the gospel as your form of reconciliation. That's the platform for all reconciliation. God has made a way for everybody to be fully redeemed and inside of a perfect covenant relationship with him. All it takes is to believe on him and trust in him and trust in Christ as your Savior to redeem you back to God the Father. And when you acknowledge your guilt before God and you lay down all of your sins before him, he is merciful and he is faithful and he is just to redeem you and forgive you and call you his child again. And if God can do that for you, and then he indwells you with the Holy Spirit, when you start having a conversation with your spouse, the first place that you need to go to is the gospel and say, all right, the Lord has forgiven me so much then if my spouse acknowledges their guilt, can I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, forgive them as well? And you begin to have the long, hard work of reconciliation because just because you forgave somebody, and this is true with God and Israel, God will forgive them and bring them back. Just because there's forgiveness there and there's reconciliation there doesn't mean there's necessarily peace in the relationship yet. But the gospel is a gospel of peace, and it makes us right with God, and as a result, if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, with good, long intervention between the Holy Spirit and the church of Jesus Christ, 
coming together for the sake of unity in a marriage, it can be found. But both spouses have to acknowledge their guilt. Both spouses have to acknowledge their dependence upon God for reconciliation to him, for removal of sins. And both spouses have to be committed to doing what the scripture tells us in order to reconcile a relationship. That's what it takes. It's really, really hard. Sounds really easy. It's really, really hard. Because you get two people in a room to really talk about the issues and you lay scripture before them. Do you know what most people say? I don't really want to do that. It's not worth it. I've been hurt too much. It's too difficult. It's too hard. And I've been burned too often. Yeah. I know. And the Lord God, your creator, has the exact same experience every day with his creation. And he pursues you relentlessly and gives you a model to follow in his steps. Friends, I want to leave you with a little gift. This is going to be really awkward. I'm not even going to play. It's going to be real weird. Uh, If your spouse is with you in the room and you're willing, just if you're willing, you don't have to, just if you're willing, do me a favor and just hold hands next to each other real quick. Okay? If you're willing. If you're not willing, I understand. And if your spouse isn't here, you know, that's okay. Just, Just hold hands. It's going to get weirder. I want you to look into each other's eyes. If you're willing. Okay? And I'm going to have you repeat four phrases to one another. Just like a marriage ceremony, I'll say this out loud, and then you'll say it to each other. Because this is the gospel. This is how it works. You ready? Repeat after me to your spouse, looking in each other's eyes if you're willing. I was wrong. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? You are forgiven. That's the gospel. Father God, thank you for how much you love us. Thank you for how you bring us back into relationship with yourself. Thank you for how you relentlessly pursue us. Father, might we model that in our marriages because there's so many good things that can drive between us. But Lord, would you let the jealousy, the holy jealousy that you've placed in our souls bring us back to each other because we love one another and most importantly because we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.